you are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weird Science Marvel Comics Podcast, uh, where I'm going to continue to try to get some sort of semblance of a newer way to do all this. I apologize for the delay of the show and the books that I'm going to have on here tonight are things that came out the last couple weeks. We will eventually get caught up in a way that I think will be kind of a a cool and different way of doing the show than what we have done in the past. I want to get a little more synergy with the YouTube channel and also kind of streamline things and get through the books quick so that we can go on to even more books. But I say that it all feels like lip service right now because as I keep doing it, I keep ending up getting delayed and forgetting things. And, you know, I'm getting old and senile, so please forgive me. But we will have some books on here tonight, and maybe everybody can let me know if they like the way of doing it this way or whatnot, or if you have suggestions and all of that jazz. But before we get into it, please go over to Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. That's where you can tell me, hey, I, I kind of like this. I dig it. I hate it, whatnot. But if you follow us, we'll follow you on back. And then you can go to our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. Check out reviews there and go to the YouTube channel. As I said, I want to try to get some more synergy eventually, maybe even have some live stream stuff, maybe some additional podcasts for this. But that is easy to find. You just look up Weird Science Comics. That will take you there on YouTube. But if you want to, you can go in the show notes. There will be links to click and link trees to check out and then finally go to our patreon patreon.com slash weird science where you can help us out for everything we do including this marvel show and get a lot of shows in return a ton of shows over there on the patreon but that's that for the beginning now let's get into some books gold goblin number one is written by christopher cantwell with art by lan medina colors by antonio favela and letters by vc joe sabino And while it is a number one issue, there is a recap page, and I will read you that recap because a bunch of things led to this number one. Norman Osborn has been cleaning up his act. As the CEO of the new Oscorp, he's helped his former nemesis, Peter Parker, design a new high-tech suit for his super identity, Spider-Man. Spoilers, I mean, really. He even gave the down-on-his-luck Peter a job so that the hero could keep an eye on Norman and keep him from going back down the dark path he'd been saved from. But no road to redemption would be complete without trials and tribulations. Norman was forced to give in to his ultimate temptation and step back on a glider in order to save Spider-Man from two hobgoblins. Surely this new Osborn can keep his goblin tendencies at bay. Right? Just as an aside, if getting on a glider is your trigger, why do you keep making gliders? Why don't you just change it up? There's many modes of transportation you can kind of use here. Rocket roller skates, maybe? That's what I might do. But I guess, Norman, he always wants to be on brand, but the brand is triggering, so there is a problem there. That is one of the biggest problems Norman seems to face. But When we get into this issue, I've seen a lot of hate thrown at Zeb Wells and the current Amazing Spider-Man run. One of the things I've enjoyed in it was the continuing maybe redemption of Norman Osborn. While I worry that Wells has already dropped the ball a bit on 
some of the other mysteries of that book, like what Peter did six months ago, what's up with Mary Jane and her new family. The mystery of is he or isn't he with Norman Osborne has actually played out pretty well. And it's fun for me. But the fun is seeing Peter think Norman has gone bad only to be revealed that he was really doing something that was good and not sus. And the key to all that for the reader, in my mind, is when you're left in the dark of what Norman's actually thinking. And that really ends here in Gold Goblin number one. And that's what I found to be very, very disappointing with this issue because Gold Goblin number one is not a bad issue. And I'm not a big Christopher Cantwell fan, so it hurts me to say it, but... It's just an issue that I'm not sure needs to exist. And my guess is that editorial needs Norman to be at a certain spot for this upcoming dark web event. And there just isn't enough time or page space in Amazing Spider-Man for him to get there. So Christopher Cantwell shows up to show us that Norman is constantly tormented by what he did as Green Goblin and even has a William Defoe-esque Goblin of the Mind taunting him. And the big play is, He ended up getting his sins taken away by Sin Eater and Nick Spencer's run. But just because the sins are gone, you know, the torment is still there. But seriously, if I had a quarter for each time we see Gwen Stacy's neck snap in this issue, I'd have at least a buck 75. And I'm telling you right now, I need that buck 75. If you saw me right now, you would know that I need that buck 75. But The whole issue, it's not all misery and neck snapping. Norman does hang out with his grandson, Normie, which is really nice, though. He seems to get triggered by an ice cream cone. That was crazy. He also talks to Peter, and Peter does seem like, again, he's beginning to trust Norman, which spells out that things are about to hit the fan. But he even by the end steps up as a hero. And while Norman was blindsided that the press knew he was the gold goblin who helped Peter in his fight against the hobgoblins and actually made the term gold goblin, which, again, pisses Norman off. He's almost gleeful when he actually gets to go up against the new jack-o'-lantern, and I still think he's being a bit over the top. That's where I think you're getting a little bit of a wink-wink. He's a bit over the top. He's a bit overzealous in his quest to take down any sort of goblins there are out there. But I'd like to see him use his tech, new and old, and using his old noggin to take down the jack-o'-lantern here. And the issue does end with Norman kind of taking to this hero role, but signing a skull for a young kid. And it seemed a little forced the way to say, yeah, he wants to be a hero. He doesn't quite know how to be a hero yet. Norman would know not to sign a skull for a kid. It's so ridiculous, though. It did make me laugh. It did make me laugh. So that's there. I can't, you know, bust on it too much. But while I still wish the mystery of whether Norman is really good or not, and it could have played out more in the Amazing Spider-Man book, it could have lasted a bit longer. I was having a lot of fun with that. Christopher Campbell does a good job here pushing things forward. And I really did like Lam Medina's art throughout the issue. And because of all of that, I'm going to give this first issue a solid 7.5 out of 10. 
Murder World Adventures Number 1, written by Jim Zub and Ray Fox, art by Jethro Morales, colors by Matt Milla, and letters by VC's Corey Petit. And there's not much of a recap. All it says is 200 contestants, $100 million, one winner, survive and make your own fate. Here we go. We end up having an issue that has Avengers on the cover and in the title. They're barely in this. And really, this feels like mid-level Squid Games knockoff bullcrap. But maybe I'm wrong. Let's get into it. Now, if you bought this issue hoping to get the Avengers, either just move along now or get very angry. Because the Avengers are in the issue, but not really. It's more about an urban legend murder world tournament. And the greatest character of all time, Paul Pastor. You know, everybody loves that Paul Pastor. The hot online influencer who knows a little too much, but is so naive, he doesn't figure out he's been fooled until right before he dies. And seriously, everybody and their mother's uncle know that Arcade is playing Paul, except Dense Paul himself. Not a great way to make you care about the main character, if you ask me. And that's my biggest problem with this issue. I didn't know or care about any of the characters in it. Who are all these contestants? No clue. Why were they selected for this? No idea. Sub and Fox do next to zero character work. And what little they did with Paul just made him annoyingly dumb. But since it's Murder World, we do get Arcade, who felt like a paint-by-numbers generic version of himself. And since I didn't care about whether the characters in this lived, died, or ate s'mores, why would I care about what Arcade is doing to them? But seriously, s'mores are the worst, and anyone who eats them deserves what they get. There are a couple twists by the end, though. I don't know they're going to knock anybody's socks off. We find out that Paul is a mutant, eh, which helps out when the Avengers finally show up, especially since they are just murder world copies of the Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It's like Westworld, but with lame jokes and songs, which actually is just like Westworld, at least how I remember it. You know, that man in black and that, uh, that's Johnny Cash, right? He had to have been singing some songs. So I won't spoil the crazy ending, but the craziest thing about this is why Zub and Fox would think we even care. Oh, well, that's pretty much my overall feelings about this. I like Jethro Morales' art enough, but the story was a big heap of nothing that will probably be forgotten before these murder world one shots are even over with. And that's right, people, these murder world thingamabobs will continue through various one shots just to make things more difficult than they need to be. And so while some may like this for a bit of dumb fun, I just thought it was straight up dumb. Give it a 4.5 out of 10. And we will move on to the next book. Fantastic Four number one, the beginning of a new series by ryan north and i'll start by telling you i was not a fan of dan slot's fantastic four that may or may not have gotten me blocked by him on twitter but hey so when marvel booted him off the book after the reckoning war i was pretty excited to see who would be taking over and when marvel announced it would be ryan north i didn't really have that much of a reaction at all i mean he wrote squirrel girl he's canadian he wrote squirrel girl And it seemed like an odd choice, but I guess it was a safe one because it kind of was greeted with a collective shrug. The first issue came out a couple weeks ago. I'm here to tell you if I liked it or not, though after reading it over and over again, like I was in a Groundhog Day, 
I may need to take some supplements. And I'm using air quotes here to get properly fired up for this book. So let's get into this Fantastic Four number one, written by Ryan North with art by Ivan Coelho. And while the book looks good, the Groundhog Day story going on here isn't quite that big bang that I was expecting or hoping this new run would have. However, that isn't the biggest problem here. The biggest problem is that for the start of the Fantastic Four, right? It's Fantastic Four number one. I think Fantastic Four on the cover. I don't think I'm wrong there. It's a thing in Alicia's story with no Johnny Sewer Reed to be found. And while that could be nice, the timing, it's way, way off. It's like starting a mixtape with a ballad. And everyone knows you never, ever start a mixtape with a ballad. That's such a no-no. You wouldn't even start a ballad mixtape with a ballad. I, it doesn't make sense. And it's beyond me what Ryan North or anyone else involved here was thinking. This story itself, though, it's not bad. It, it's nice enough. It could have been a nice cooldown issue after an action-packed first arc or even part of an annual down the line. But as the start of a new run, a new series, it's an epic fail, especially following a Dan Slot run that never got people excited for the Fantastic Four. And I say people, I mean myself, because I'm selfish and I didn't get into it. I wanted to be excited. I want to be excited for this one. So what is the story about? Well, Ben and Alicia find themselves in a town that is Groundhog Daying It Up living out July 12th, 1947, over and over and over again. And don't expect a mind-bending reason for the date. Don't expect a mind-bending reason for any of this happening. It's just the day a guy named Samford had his heart broken by his best gal, Millie, and just can't get past it. Of course, there is a twist that he seems to unknowingly use his unknown time-repeating powers to go through this Groundhog Day rinse and repeat cycle. I mean, if I had a nickel every time that happened to me, and really, if it was me, it would be Groundhog's decade. A lot, a lot of heartbreak in old Jimmy Boy's past. I'll tell you, that one tear is going down my cheek right now. I wish you could see it. Uh, the thing, though, is, is that nobody knows this is actually happening. So this quaint little town it's stuck in 1947, which, I don't know, it could be cool, right? I mean, one of the big songs that year was Peg Oh My Heart by the Harmonicats, which sounds way sexier in 2022 than it probably did in 1947. And seriously, everyone, the Harmonicats, I mean, yeah, Harmonicats. But not everything is rainbows and lollipops. If you are a history buff like myself, you probably know the darker side of 1947, and it does rear its ugly head here. And what I mean is a lot of the townspeople, they're straight up racist against rock people. A little, little tidbit for you there. Now, there's no real solid explanation of why and how any of this is happening. Maybe the local nuclear testing site has given Sanford his powers. Maybe the cosmic radiation coursing through Ben's blood allowed him and Alicia to enter. This displaced time town, it really doesn't make much sense, and you really shouldn't think much about it, but it lets Ryan North tell his surface-level Twilight Zone-like story about a guy with a broken heart who just wants to make things right. Except, like I said, he doesn't know any of this is happening. So he wakes up on the same day, does the same thing, and gets the same heartbreak over and over. I, it's just like Sisyphus 
pushing that big rock up the hill only for it to roll down again. And I think I just figured out why this town hates rock people. So Ben and Alicia to the rescue, like Bill Murray, they use the repeated day to fit in a bit more. Doesn't really make much sense in this situation. Uh, Give Samford the romantic advice he needs. It takes a while, but they finally give him the advice he needs. And it's pretty much get over that bitch and move on. Now, I am joking here, and I want to stop a second to say that the heartfelt advice that Alicia actually does give Sanford, it kind of got to me, especially the part where it all tied into cockfighting, which is legitimately what happened in this issue. But he does get over that bitch, and he does move on, and so does the town. Sanford eventually finds a soulmate, and we see a nice progression of their lives together from their first date to Sanford's death. Probably the not-so-great side effect of that nuclear testing that gave him his powers. Now, one of the things is he says that he'll never use that power again. The end might actually be a bit, you know, ambiguous, but it's kind of a downer at the end. It is sad. So I'll have to tell you, I got a little bit of feels by then. But then we finally do get some Fantastic Four stuff at the very end. We find out that Reed has done something awful to New York City. We see a big giant crater and find out everybody hates the Fantastic Four. Now, this has happened in the Hulk, Donnie Cates' Hulk. We have it in Zeb Wells' Amazing Spider-Man. And now this. It's always something happened in the past. We don't really know what yet. But man, everybody hates everyone. I don't know what's going on. Why did these Marvel writers get together and think that this is something cool? Is, are they messing with us? Are they punking us? Is Ashton Kutcher involved? I don't know. But overall, Ivan Quill's art is good. And this issue is fine. It's just so out of place as the first issue of a brand new Fantastic Four series. So it's kind of a weird book to rate. If you end up reading this as a one shot years from now, you'll probably think, man, this is pretty good. It's a little heartfelt story. You know, it might not make a lot of sense. And why did they hate rock people? But, you know, all that stuff, all that, it'd be okay. But as the number one issue of a new Fantastic Four series, I said before, epic fail. But even then, I'm still going to give it a 5.5 out of 10. I could be convinced to go to a six. If I kind of calm down, I will. I'm going to calm down here. And take a breath. (sighs) I just took a breath. Six out of 10. And I hope that the next issue gives us a little more of Marvel's first family. That's what we need. And next up is Strange Academy Finals number two. If you have listened to me talk about Strange Academy before, you know that while I like this book a lot, I always bitch and moan at the lack of classroom shenanigans. And in a Harry Potter-esque setting like this, the classroom stuff is not only fun, but it's where you see who is good at what. You set up clicks that drive things forward and such. And I wish we could have had more of that. But as it is, We've got more field trips and weekend hangouts than actual class. But at this point, it's not a big deal since we know most of the characters and the divide between hashtag Team Strange Academy and hashtag Team Emily is very, very clear. So let's head off to school and see what is up at Strange Academy this month. Strange Academy finals number two is written by Scotty Young with awesome art by Umberto Ramos, colors by Edgar Delgado. And VCs Clayton Cowles. So let's get into this. 
The issue starts with hashtag Team Strange Academy at an impromptu Saturday assembly. Unfortunately, they won't be learning about the crazy world of yo-yos, but instead cleaning up the crap hole the Academy has become. And I hope that when and if the mindless ones return, they will be appreciated just a little bit for the many toilets they've scrubbed and books they've reshelled. Now, luckily, the kids will have some help. Zoe and a bunch of students have returned from the dark dimension, and that was set up last issue. And if you have been reading this series, I can tell you that the confrontation turned hug between her and Doyle was priceless and is is bound to give you some feels. So after cleaning up the academy, which I just want to point out is precisely the type of classroom shenanigans I talked about earlier, the kids and faculty chill out at a backyard barbecue, and that's where Scotty Young kicks it up a notch. Our main crew finds out that Calvin is back in town, what he's been up to, and it's off to save him from the clutches of Gaslamp. Now, Zoe's checkered past with the villain allows Young to get right to the chase, and seeing most of the gang taking it to the streets is so good. It also shows how far they've come as they Ocean's Eleven it up to free their captured friend. And at this point, I thought I had cracked the code. See, I thought, okay, they're going to get Calvin. He'll be accepted back in the academy. Emily will be happy about that, and everything will be fine, right? Well, while all that may still happen, there is a bit of an explosive ending here that might delay things just a tiny bit. And I'm so glad that Strange Academy is back. Umberto Ramos's art is incredible. And Scotty Young continues to kill it with the character work that always was the driving force behind this book. And so because of all that, in a very, very quick read, but a satisfying read, I am giving this issue an 8.9 out of 10. I really can't wait for the next issue. And I hope that the book actually stays around. No delays goes on forever and ever and ever. Right. That could happen. All they have to do is get like an AI of Scotty Young. They they can do that. He can keep writing it and then somehow program an Android that can draw like Umberto Ramos. I, I think that might be the, the point where we might not be able to do it. So maybe it won't go on forever, but I hope it does continue on because I know a lot of people really love this book as I do as well. All right, let's move along and talk a little a Ghost Rider next. Ben Percy's Ghost Rider book has been hit or miss for me. I've loved the art throughout the entire series. And while I appreciate that Ben Percy rarely gets overly fancy in his storytelling, he may be a little bit too ham-fisted at times. That nonsense motorcycle rally that he stole from his own Nightwing series as an example. Still, it's a solid read each month. And, and hopefully the demonic duo of Johnny Blaze and Talia Warroad will make things even better but let's get into this this is ghost rider number eight written by benjamin percy art by Corey smith inks by oren jr colors by brian valenza and letters by vcs travis lanham i'm gonna give you what is the recap previously for some time another entity named exhaust was lurking within johnny severing his control over the spirit of vengeance with the help of the x-men wolverine The demonic entity was finally expelled, but Exhaust now runs rampant, and under the leadership of Blackheart, they seek to raise hell across the country and kill anyone who gets in their way, including Johnny, 
and FBI agent Talia Warroad. So that's where we have been. And here's where we go. The issue kicks off with Johnny thinking how crazy Talia is because she has a sus murder board in her hotel room. Right. Actually, it's just me thinking how crazy she is because Johnny seems all about it and goes a step further. He starts carving his own on the floor. And seriously, they are made for one another. Once Johnny's done, Talia puts a flaming pentagram on it like she's doing special effects for a Motley Crue video. And they figure out where to go next. And I think that we were supposed to see this nonsense of newspaper clippings and brimstone and have a eureka moment along with the characters. But I'll admit, I had no idea what was happening in this part. And I swear, the more I looked at it, I thought it was telling me that former president and mutton chop champ Martin Van Buren was after them. But again, I am a big dummy, and I don't think he is. We'll see. That might be a shocker later. We then take a trip to the happiest place on Earth. Yep, it's back to the unknown cemetery where Worm... Just the disgusting character made of, you guessed it, worms, seeps up through the ground and finds out that the Council of Night Magicians has had a bit of a falling out. Thank God they figure out that Blackheart-controlled Alabaster because I couldn't sleep at night thinking that Alabaster had done this all on his own. And I kid because I do care. And my favorite part of the issue, though, is here where as they're leaving, the Unknown Cemetery. Zeb gets into the World Cup spirit and boots Alabaster's head. It was hilarious. While this is all going on, though, Talia and Johnny hit the road to Chicago. That's what that burning pentagram murder board told them. And they run into what is literally a bunch of roadkill. And that is a bit of a joke. I should hit this. All of the nice woodland creatures, you know, of all the land have been horrifically transformed into hell beasts and attacked Talia's car. And I want to point out that one thing, it bothers me that Talia's car reminds me so much of the bad guy's car from the movie Grease. You know, Grease and really pour one out for Dennis Stewart, a.k.a. Craterface. Now, this fight continues a bit too long. But it does end with a Wonder Twins activate Hell Charger moment that really, really will piss Robbie Reyes off if he finds out about it. Let's hope that he doesn't. But after that, we end up finding out that Exhaust was behind all this. There's no surprise there. And Talia and Johnny make it to Chicago. They say that the Windy City is sick, but so is Johnny. And after a quick smooch, which kind of got my hell charger going, all hell breaks out of Johnny's mouth. And we get a really, really cool looking cliffhanger page. I give kudos for that. So what did I think of this issue? Well, the art is great with a special shout out to Brian Valenza on colors. The color work is supoid. But the story itself really needs to start picking up the pace. I already said The demonic animal attacks went on a bit too long. Besides that, we didn't get much in this issue. We found out exhaust is after Johnny, which we already knew, while Johnny and Talia go from point A to point B, which means going from hotel room to Chicago. Still, if you've liked this book so far, you're probably used to the slower pace that Ben Percy is chugging along with. And with all that in mind, I am giving Ghost Rider number eight a seven 
out of 10. And the last book for the podcast is Moon Knight number 17. Moon Knight's one of those books that seem to catch lightning in a bottle. People loved it from the get-go. And while I agree, Alessandro Capuccio's art is so, so good, so outstanding, the book itself has been a bit inconsistent for me. I say that, but it's never been bad. But I also don't think it's ever been as good as the 10 out of 10s that a bunch of these bullshit sites and podcasts keep giving it. But hey, you can say that about most books these days. And those are shots fired. Moon Knight number 17 is written by Jed McKay, art by Alessandro Capuccio, colors by Rachel Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Corey Petit. The issue is called Home Game. And here is the recap. Moon Knight has been attempting to dismantle the structure of the group responsible for turning his assistant Reese into a vampire. Moon Knight met with Lady Yulan, leader of a rival group of vampires, and learned more about Tudor, head of the structure. Lady Yulan agreed to help Moon Knight infiltrate the Tudor's upcoming international vampire conclave. Meanwhile, the Tudors sent the assassin's grandma and Nemean after Moon Knight and his associates. The two assassins battled Moon Knight's ally and fellow fist of Kanchu Hunter's Moon. The assassin sent a deadly warning to Moon Knight by snapping Hunter's Moon's neck. And that was a pretty crazy way to end last issue. So what's going on here? The issue opens with Moon Knight and Tiger discovering the dead body of Hunter's Moon and Mark going off to take down the two assassins, Nemean and Grand Maul. Just as an aside, you got to remember Grand Maul knows the dim mock from Bloodsport, so pretty damn cool. And I was pretty pumped for this battle since they just killed hunter's moon and had previously bested moon knight himself oh my god what is mark going to be able to do this battle is just going to be one for the ages right and hell he even says it himself just after telling tigra he must do this alone because he's going somewhere no one should ever follow that's some crazy setup to turn the page and see that moon knight off panel has already grabbed nemean and is running him through the streets like a carrot on, not a stick, a chain to draw Grand Maul towards the Midnight Mission, where he then throws both Nemean and Grand Maul into the new HQ. And it feels like Jed McKay wants more hype for this new Haunted House HQ. And for me, the fight suffers a bit because of it. I actually like the new Midnight Mission, but this fight boils down to Grandma and Nemean saying nothing can scare us. And then you end up having the haunted house midnight mission go boo. And then the baddies crap their pants. That's pretty much kind of what happens. And I also thought that in a weird way, the art was a bit of a letdown in these scenes. Now, I am comparing Capuccio's art to Capuccio's art. Because usually this sort of thing is accompanied by jaw-dropping full-page spreads. Stuff that you just look at and go, oh, my God, look at this deal. These were a bit bland in comparison. Now, that's just my opinion. But not all's lost, though, as it is revealed that Hunter's Moon didn't die before we go off to see Tudor. Now, there's a couple things here that kind of let me down in this scene here, especially with Hunter's Moon. I like that he's back. That's really cool. But he was hardly gone. So that lessens the impact. Also at play here is you kind of say, hey, everybody, the Hunter's Moon, he didn't die. Look, us Fistaconchu, we don't die. We just multiply. And they probably start rapping, right? And they're going down. But the problem is you, you zip off. You swipe out of there way too quick. 
And the scene just never settles. It never gets to the point where you can let it breathe a little kind of, oh, my God, that's crazy. What's You just go zipping off to Tudor's TED Talk about his vampire pyramid scheme. And I don't know about everybody listening here. I'm sure that everybody's pissed off with me already, disagrees with 100% of what I'm saying. There's got to be somebody out there that's with me that I don't care about Tudor. I don't care about the structure. I find them boring villains, especially with all the other crazy stuff going on. And then you have this guy doing his TED Talk pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme, whatever the scheme is. It's boring. You're boring is what it is. And so all of that, I'll be happy when Tudor gets taken down because then he's out of the book and we can get on to something better. And I pray, I pray that Moon Knight says pyramids are my thing as he punches them. Right in his stupid face. So, after listening to all this scheme nonsense, Moon Knight finally does show up with Tigra. And boy, I I can't wait for the next issue. The cliffhanger is great. The cliffhanger has me excited. But it it has me excited right after a couple pages, just straight up boring talk about vampire structures and pyramid schemes and all the things that I already mentioned. It's just boring. So, I can't wait till next issue. But this book has that weird pacing. You usually end up thinking something's going to happen the next issue. And then the next issue, we meander to get to that point again to then get to it. But we'll see. And I know I came off maybe as a bit too negative in this review. But overall, I don't think the issue's horrible. The art is good. It just, I thought it could have been better in those fight scenes. It didn't impress me as much as some prior issues. And the story isn't just horrible. It just felt a bit rushed and a bit unfocused. And anything with Tudor in it is not going to be, you know, top marks for me because I find him very, very boring, not even threatening. He's just annoying. But I mentioned at the beginning of the review, I think some people just keep giving this book 10 out of 10s because they keep giving this book 10 out of 10s. But if I just judge it even against itself, This is a slightly down issue, in my opinion. That's why I'm giving it a 7.5 out of 10. I'm sure that I could be convinced to go up to an 8. I wouldn't go any lower than a 7.5. An 8 is probably the ceiling, but right now, I feel that 7.5, but I am really, really looking forward to next issue. All right, and that is it for this week's podcast. This is still me catching up, so there should be another episode, much like this one new format on sunday night now there are a couple other books that i did want to do before we got to that and i think what i'm going to end up doing to give a little incentive for our youtube channel i think that i'm going to do the issue of daredevil that was from a couple weeks ago and then the planet hulk world breakers issue i'm going to do those as videos on the youtube channel so if you want to hear what i think of those please go over and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is Weird Science Comics. You can look in the show notes. There'll be a link that you can click on to go or just search Weird Science Comics in YouTube, and you will certainly find us. And then you can hear what I think about that Daredevil and that Planet Hulk issue, and especially the Daredevil one before we end up talking about the newest issue on Sunday, because I'm planning on doing that then as well. So. Please, uh, yeah, do all that. Go over to YouTube. Check that out. Go over to Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. 
Also check out our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. And then last but not least, go and check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash weird science, where we have a bunch of shows, a ton of podcasts, a lot of those Marvel podcasts, but also DC, indie, and manga, and even other stuff like a pop culture podcast and all of that jazz. But that's that. I'm not going to hold you back any longer. We're going to all get out of here. I'm going to go to bed is what I'm going to do. But thanks, everybody, for listening. I'd love to hear what you think of kind of the new way of doing things. Hopefully it will stick. But that's that. And I'll talk to you all next week. Go read comics. You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution.